Chapter Eight of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Eight, The Three Friends. His companions had passed on while he was at his horizons, but his young blood and the fresh morning air both invited him to a scamper. His staff in one hand and his scrip in the other, with springy step and floating locks, he raced along the forest path, as active and as graceful as a young deer. He had not far to go, however, for on turning a corner he came on a roadside cottage with a wooden fence-work around it where stood Big John and Aylward the bowman, staring at something within. As he came up with them, he saw that two little lads, one about nine years of age, and the other somewhat older, were standing on the plot in front of the cottage, each holding out a round stick in their left hands, with their arms stiff and straight from the shoulder, as silent and still as two small statues. They were pretty blue-eyed, yellow-haired lads, well made and sturdy, with bronze skins which spoke of a woodland life. "'Here are young chips from an old post-ave,' cried the soldier, in great delight. "'This is the proper way to raise children. By my hilt I could not have trained them better if I had the ordering of it myself.' "'What is it, then?' asked Hordle John. "'They stand very stiff, and I trust they have not been struck so.' "'Nay, they're training their left arms, that they may have a steady grasp of the bow.' so my own father trained me and six days a week i held out his walking-staff till my arm was as heavy as lead hola mes enfants how long will you hold out until the sun is over the great lime-tree good master the elder answered what would you be then woodmen verderers nay soldiers they cried both together by the beard of my father but ye are whelps of the true breed why so keen then to be soldiers that we may fight the Scots, they answered. Daddy will send us to fight the Scots. And why the Scots, my pretty lads? We have seen French and Spanish galleys no further away than Southampton, but I doubt it will be some time before the Scots find their way to these parts. Our business is with the Scots, quoth the elder, for it was the Scots who cut off Daddy's string fingers and his thumbs. Aye, lads, it was that said a deep voice from behind Alan's shoulder. Looking round, the wayfarers saw a gaunt, big-boned man with sunken cheeks and a sallow face, who had come up behind them. He held up his two hands as he spoke, and showed that the thumbs and two first fingers had been torn away from each of them. "'Ma foi, camarade!' cried Aylward. "'Who hath served thee in so shameful a fashion?' "'It is easy to see, friend, that you are born far from the marches of Scotland,' quoth the stranger with a bitter smile. "'North of Humber there is no man who would not know the handiwork of Devil Douglas, the Black Lord James.' "'And how fell you into his hands?' asked John. "'I am a man of the north country, from the town of Beverley and the Wapentake of Holderness,' he answered. "'There was a day when, from Trent to Tweed, there was no better marksman than Robin Heathcote. Yet, as you see—' He hath left me, as he hath left many another poor border archer, with no grip for bill or bow. Yet the king hath given me a living here in the Southlands, and, please God, 
these two lads of mine will pay off a debt that has been owing over long. "'What's the price of Daddy's thumbs, boys?' Twenty Scottish lives,' they answered together. "'And for the fingers, half a score.' "'When they can bend my war-bow, and bring down a squirrel at a hundred paces, I send them to take service under Johnny Copeland, the Lord of the Marches and Governor of Carlisle. "'By my soul, I would give the rest of my fingers to see the Douglas within arrow-flight of them.' "'May you live to see it,' quoth the bowman. "'And hark ye, mes enfants.' Take an old soldier's reed, and lay your bodies to the bow, drawing from hip and thigh as much as from arm. Learn also, I pray you, to shoot with a dropping shaft, for though a bowman may at times be called upon to shoot straight and fast, yet it is more often that he has to do with a town guard behind a wall, or an arbalester with his mantlet raised, when you cannot hope to do him scathe unless your shaft fall straight upon him from the clouds. I have not drawn string for two weeks, but I may be able to show you how such shots may be made. He loosed his longbow, slung his quiver round to the front, and then glanced keenly round for a fitting mark. There was a yellow and withered stump some way off, seen under the drooping branches of a lofty oak. The archer measured the distance with his eye, and then, drawing three shafts, he shot them off with such speed that the first had not reached the mark ere the last one was on the string. Each arrow passed high over the oak, and of the three, two struck fair into the stump, while the third, caught in some wandering puff of wind, was driven a foot or two to one side. "'Good!' cried the North Countryman. "'Hearken to him, lads. He's a master bowman. Your dad says amen to every word he says.' "'By my hilt,' said Aylward, "'if I am to preach on bowmanship, the whole long day would scarce give me time for my sermon. "'We have marksmen in the company who will notch with a shaft "'every crevice and joint of a man-at-arm's harness, "'from the clasp of his bassinet to the hinge of his greave. "'But with your favour, friend, I must gather my arrows again, "'for while a shaft costs a penny, a poor man can scarce leave them sticking in wayside stumps.' We must then on our road again, and I hope from my heart that you may train these two young goshawks here until they are ready for a cast, even at such a quarry as you speak of. Leaving the thumbless archer and his brood, the wayfarers struck through the scattered huts of Emery Down, and out on to the broad rolling heath, covered deep in ferns and in heather, where droves of the half-wild black forest pigs were rooting about amongst the hillocks. The woods about this point fall away to the left and the right, while the road curves upwards and the wind sweeps keenly over the swelling uplands. The broad strips of bracken glowed red and yellow against the black peaty soil, and a queenly doe, who grazed among them, turned her white front and her great questioning eyes towards the wayfarers. Alan gazed in admiration at the supple beauty of the creature but the archer's fingers played with his quiver, and his eyes glistened with the fell instinct which urges a man to slaughter. "'Tete, dear,' he growled, "'were this France, or even Guienne, we should have a fresh haunch for our known meat. Law or no law, I have a mind to loose a bolt at her. I would break your stave across my knee first, cried John, laying his great hand upon the bow. "'What man! I am forest-born, and I know what comes of it. "'In our township of Hordle two have lost their eyes, "'and one his skin for this very thing. 
On my troth I felt no great love when I first saw you, but since then I have conceived overmuch regard for you to wish to see the verderer's flayer at work upon you. It's my trade to risk my skin, growled the archer. But nonetheless he thrust his quiver over his hip again, and turned his face for the west. As they advanced, the path still tended upwards, running from heath into copses of holly and yew, and so back into heath again. It was joyful to hear the merry whistle of blackbirds as they darted from one clump of greenery to the other. Now and again a peaty amber-coloured stream rippled across their way, with ferny overgrown banks, where the blue kingfisher flitted busily from side to side, or the grey and pensive heron, swollen with trout and dignity, stood ankle-deep among the sedges. Chattering jays and loud wood-pigeons flapped thickly overhead, while, ever and anon, the measured tapping of nature's carpenter, the great green woodpecker, sounded from each wayside grove. On either side, as the path mounted, the long sweep of country broadened and expanded, sloping down on the one side through yellow forest and brown moor to the distant smoke of Lymington and the blue misty channel which lay alongside the skyline, while to the north the woods rolled away, grove topping grove, to where in the farthest distance the white spire of Salisbury stood out hard and clear against the cloudless sky. To Alan, whose days had been spent in the low-lying coastland, the eager upland air and the wide free countryside gave a sense of life and of joy of living, which made his young blood tingle in his veins. Even the heavy John was not unmoved by the beauty of their road, while the bowman whistled lustily or sang snatches of French love-songs in a voice which might have scared the most stout-hearted maiden that ever hearkened to serenade. "'I have a liking for that north countryman,' he remarked presently. "'He hath a good power of hatred. Could see by his cheek and eye that he is as bitter as virtues. I warm to a man who hath some gall in his liver.' "'Ah, me!' sighed Ellen. "'Would it not be better if he had some love in his heart?' "'I would not say nay to that. "'By my hilt, I never shall be said to be a traitor to the little king. "'Let a man love the sex. "'Pasque Dieu, they are made to be loved, les petites, "'from wimple down to shoestring. "'I am right glad, mon garçon, "'to see that the good monks have trained thee so wisely and so well. "'Nay!' I meant not worldly love, but rather that his heart should soften towards those who have wronged him. The archer shook his head. A man should love those of his own breed, said he. But it is not nature that an English-born man should love Scot or a Frenchman. Ma foi, you have not seen a drove of Nithsdale raiders on their Galloway nags, or you would not speak of loving them. I would as soon take Beelzebub himself to my arms. I fear, mon gars, that they have taught thee but badly at Bewley, for surely a bishop knows more of what is right and what is ill than an abbot can do, and I myself, with these very eyes, saw the Bishop of Lincoln hew into a Scottish hobbler with a battle-axe, which was a passing strange way of showing him that he loved him. Alan scarce saw his way to argue in the face of so decided an opinion on the part of a high dignitary of the church. "'You have borne arms against the Scots, then?' he asked. "'Why, man, I first loosed string in battle when I was but a lad, "'younger by two years than you, at Neville's Cross, 
under the Lord Mowbray. Later I served under the warden of Berwick, that very John Copeland of whom our friend spoke, the same who held the King of Scots to ransom. Ma foi, it is rough soldiering, and a good school for one who had learned to be hardy and war-wise. I have heard that the Scots are good men of war, said Hordle John. For axemen and spearmen I have not seen their match, the archer answered. They can travel, too, with a bag of meal and a gridiron slung to their sword-belt, so that it is ill to follow them. There are scant crops and few beavies in the borderland, where a man must reap his grain with a sickle in one fist and a brown bill in the other. On the other hand, they are the sorriest archers that I have ever seen, and cannot so much as aim with the arbalest, to say naught of the longbow. Again, they are mostly poor folk, even the nobles among them, so that there are few who can buy as good a brigadine of chain-mail as that which I am wearing, and it is ill for them to stand up against our own knights, who carry the price of five Scotch farms upon their chest and shoulders. Man for man, with equal weapons, they are as worthy and valiant men as could be found in the whole of Christendom. And the French, asked Alan, to whom the archer's light gossip had all the relish that the words of the man of action have for the recluse. The French are also very worthy men. We have had great good fortune in France, and it hath led to much bobbance and campfire talk, but I have ever noticed that those who know the most have the least to say about it. I have seen Frenchmen fight both in the open field, in the intaking and the defending of towns or castlewicks, in escalados, camisades, night forays, bushments, sallies, outfalls, and nightly spear-runnings. Their knights and squires, lad, are every whit as good as ours, and I could pick out a score of those who ride behind Dugesquelin, who would hold the lists with sharpened lances against the best men in the army of England. On the other hand, their common folk are so crushed down with gabelle and poll-tax, and every manner of cursed tallage, that the spirit has passed right out of them. It is a fool's plan to teach a man to be a cur in peace, and think that he will be a lion in war fleece them like sheep, and sheep they will remain. If the nobles had not conquered the poor folk, it is like enough that we should have not conquered the nobles. But they must be sorry folk to bow down to the rich in such a fashion, said Big John. I am but a poor commoner of England myself, and yet I know something of charters, liberties, franchises, usages, privileges, customs, and the like. If these be broken, then all men know that it is time to buy arrowheads. Aye, but the men of the law are strong in France as well as the men of war. By my hilt, I hold that a man has more to fear there from the ink-pot of one of them than from the iron of the other. There is ever some cursed sheepskin in their strong-boxes to prove that the rich man should be richer and the poor man poorer. It would scarce pass in England, but they are quiet folk over the water. And what other nations have you seen in your travels, good sir? asked Alan Edrickson. His young mind hungered for plain facts of life, after the long course of speculation and of mysticism on which he had been trained. "'I have seen the low countryman in arms, and I have naught to say against him. Heavy and slow is he by nature, and is not to be brought into battle for the sake of a lady's eyelash or the twang of a minstrel string, like the hotter blood of the South. But, ma foi, lay hand on his wool-bales, or trifle with his velvet of Bruges, and out buzzes every stout burger like bees from the tea-hole, ready to lay on as though it were his one business in life. 
by our lady they have shown the french in courtai and elsewhere that they are as deft in wielding steel as in welding it and the men of spain they too are very hardy soldiers the more so for many hundred years they have had to fight hard against the cursed followers of the black mahud who have pressed upon them from the south and still as i understand hold the fairer half of the country i had a turn with them upon the sea when they came over to winchelsea and the good queen had her ladies sat upon the cliffs looking down at us as if it had been a joust or tourney by my hilt it was a sight that was worth the seeing for all that was best in england was out on the water that day we went forth in little ships and came back in great galleys for of fifty tall ships of spain over two score flew the cross of st george ere the sun had set but now youngster i have answered you freely and i trow it is time that you answered me let things be plat and plain between us i am a man who shoots straight at his mark you saw the things i had with me at yonder hostel name which you will save only the box of rose-coloured sugar which i take to the lady loring and you shall have it if you will but come with me to france nay said alan i would gladly come with you to france or where else you will just to list to your talk and because ye are the only two friends that i have in the whole wide world outside of the cloisters but indeed it may not be for my duty is towards my brother seeing that father and mother are dead and he my elder besides when you talk of taking me to france ye do not conceive how useless i should be to you seeing that neither by training nor my nature am i fitted for the wars and there seems to be naught but strife in those parts ah that comes from my fool's talk cried the archer for being a man of no learning myself my tongue turns to blades and targets even as my hand does know then that for every parchment in england there are twenty in france for every statue cut gem shrine carven screen or what else might please the eye of a learned clerk there are a good hundred to our one at the spoiling of carcassonne i have seen chambers stored with writing though not one man in our company could read them again in arles and nimes and other towns that i could name there are the great arches and fortalices still standing which were built of old by giant men who came from the south can i not see by your brightened eye how you would love to look upon these things come then with me and by these ten finger-bones there is not one of them which you shall not see i should indeed love to look upon them alan answered but i have come from beaulieu for a purpose and i must be true to my service even as thou art true to thine bethink you again mon ami quoth aylward that you might do much good yonder since there are three hundred men in the company and none who has ever a word of grace for them and yet the virgin knows there was never a set of men who were in more need of it sickly the one duty may balance the other your brother hath done without you this many a year and as i gather he hath never walked as far as beaulieu to see you during all that time so he cannot be in any great need of you besides said john the sockman of minstead is a byword through the forest from bramshaw hill to holmesley walk he is a drunken brawling perilous churl as you may find at your cost the more reason that i should strive to mend him quoth alan there is no need to urge me friends for my own wishes would draw me to france and it would be a joy to me if i could go with you but indeed and indeed it cannot be so here i take my leave of you for yonder square tower amongst the trees upon the right must surely be the church of minstead 
and I may reach it by this path through the woods. Well, God be with thee, lad, cried the archer, pressing Alan to his heart. I am quick to love and quick to hate, and for God I am loath to part. Would it not be well, said John, that we should wait here, and see what manner of greeting you have from your brother? You may prove to be as welcome as the king's purveyor to the village dame. Nay, nay, he answered, ye must not bide for me, for where I go I stay. Yet it may be as well that you should know whither we go, said the archer. We shall now journey south through the woods, until we come out upon the Christchurch road, and so onwards, hoping to-night to reach the castle of Sir William Montacute, Earl of Salisbury, of which Sir Nigel Loring is constable. There we shall bide, and it is like enough that for a month or more you may find us there, ere we are ready for our viage back to France. It was hard indeed for Alan to break away from these two new but hearty friends, and so strong was the combat between his conscience and his inclinations, that he dared not look round, lest his resolution should slip away from him. It was not until he was deep among the tree-trunks that he cast a glance backwards, when he found that he could still see them through the branches on the road above him. The archer was standing with folded arms, his bow jutting from over his shoulder, and the sun gleaming brightly upon his headpiece and the links of his chain-mail. Beside him stood his giant recruit, still clad in the homespun and ill-fitting garments of the Fuller of Lymington, with arms and legs shooting out of his scanty garb. Even as Alan watched them, they turned upon their heels and plodded off together upon their way. End of chapter 8